0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today. <music> Mimi Castile of Hopewell Vineyard on the show. Hello. How are you?
1: I'm well. Thank you for having me.
0: It's very nice to see you. And we're kind of in the neck of the woods of which you grew up because you grew up at Bethel Heights, the winery. Mm -hmm. And your family owned that.
1: That's right. I was a little baby when we moved here and basically was riding in a backpack when the first sticks were going in the ground.
0: So what was your childhood like on a farm?
1: It wasn't like a farm. It was like a wonderland. And I still remember the the creek and how the vegetation along the creek had these very specific smells that are still so much a part of my DNA and how, as we were putting the vineyard in, we were literally just putting it in through this amazing habitat. And that persisted over time because of the way that we farmed and the potential for this one plant, this perennial plant, to lay down on the landscape and be able to translate that into a product without having to otherwise destroy that habitat. Because if you believe in place, then you have to think that what's there is what makes it. So it was amazing. It was before Parenting was quite as rigorous as it is now, so we were left alone a lot, long hours to ourselves to crawl under fences and explore the neighbor's properties, and there were a lot of legends that we created. (laughs) I think that the wildness of Oregon, especially the wildness that I experienced in Oregon when it was the 80s, a lot of development has happened since then, and we do forget how little time has passed and how much of that wildness that you know we've lost and people people wanting a piece of that and so i think one of the things that i lament a little bit is just how do i recreate that same feeling for my kids given that we don't deserve to live here any more than anyone else but you do feel protective of it especially when so much is happening in such a short period of time.
0: What's your experience of those changes, being a kid here and then living here until college? What did you see in terms of development?
1: Really, truly very little up until the time I left for college. I remember still at the time I left for college thinking, I wonder if this wine thing is ever really going to take off. I mean, seriously, that's how I felt <laughs> And we did see a lot of changes in the agriculture around us because a lot of the crops that are grown here are annual crops, and so they change on a yearly basis. So we've seen more hazelnuts in the last 20 years or whatever, but the main difference that I've seen just in the last 10 to 15 years is this immense growth in viticulture. And it's unchallenged, which is a problem. In other regions, there are laws in place and there are boundaries drawn and there are things that you can't do. And here we're still a little bit behind the curve in terms of being able to see into the future and how we might be affecting our own capacity to keep doing this the way we want to do it, given how quickly we're growing without taking a moment to consider the ramifications of that.
0: One thing you mentioned to me at one point was like, if it was soybeans, people would be like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Totally. Like, let's do some limits. Yeah. But then when you say it's grapevines, people are like, Great, Yay. anything you want. Yeah, rising let's do tide. This. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Bring the economy. Um, yes. I think that's a very strong point, which is that viticulture gets this pass that other types of agriculture don't get. And I'm not really sure what to attribute that to other than the mystique of wine and how how much value added you get from the product that you create, provided that you can actually sell that product.
0: So you went to college, you studied the humanities, you also did some science work, MS, and then you did a lot of work in the forestry service and then fighting forest fires during different parts of your young adulthood.
1: Yes. For me, that was very... Formative, because it was really when I was fighting forest fires that I started to pay attention to some of the implications of the way we manage the landscape and have managed the landscape for the last 150 200 years, and how how many of those effects take a century to really come home, but now we're at this point where if we don't begin to recognize the part that we've played in getting to this point, then we don't stand a chance of turning around and agriculture really is at the heart of that because the agricultural and privately held land base dwarfs what we have in wilderness areas and protected areas. And you do start to see the erosion of the protected lands when the privately held land base is not supporting that. And I started to really see that when I was fighting these fires that had no, we had no chance of beating them. We were literally trying to save homes. And in the meantime, the fires get more and more and more intense, and there's more and more devastation to the ecosystems, not to mention the neighborhoods now. I mean, that's what we're starting to really see. And that was really the beginning of me considering my way back to agriculture because there was a me that wanted to just go into the wilderness and stay there. But I feel like the work really needs to be done on private lands and the wine, the wine calls you back.
0: What you realize working for the forest service is that, like you mentioned, the percentage of public land to private land is a big difference. And if you want to make a real impact, you have to encourage change at the private level.
1: Exactly. And I think that we have to recognize that for people to even value what we have in the wealth of public land, they have to have a touch point in nature that's in their backyard. So one of the philosophies behind the project at Hopewell
0: Which is the vineyard that you won't know.
1: Exactly is that it's an open teaching farm about how habitat supports agriculture and there is no there is no hope for doing anything sustainably if habitat's not at the heart of what you do and that I mean you can call it habitat you can call it food web you can call it whatever but we use the word sustainability as if we think we know what that means and I feel like most people really have a one generation view of what that really means. And that's not going to get us very far.
0: What you're saying is that there's an ecological clock that's moving towards habitat collapse mm-hmm. and it's clicking. Yeah. And it's going quite a bit faster than most people realize.
1: Yes. I mean, the whole tipping point theory, or once you've crossed over the shoulder of the bell curve, it's a pretty steep fall. And these landscapes are tremendously resilient, especially in the West, where we do have a pretty temperate climate. A lot would be possible if the agricultural land base were to get on board and really embrace some of these ideas of working together, networking, to form the, the threads of support to sort of knit these little pockets of habitat back together. And it's not that hard and it doesn't have to be at odds with the economics of farming. And that really bothers me when people point to the sustainability of the business model and the economics of farms. I would hope that if you have come to work the land, that first and foremost, you consider yourself a steward and that the value of the quality of life that doing that work gives back to you should factor into what you consider your economic model. These non-economic values of proximity to the land and proximity to the things that keep us well. That was a lot of words.
0: You're addressing something that I hear a lot, which is that people say to me, well, we can't do that kind of farming, by which they mean without chemicals, Mm -hmm. because we can't afford it. And So we can't do it. Right. It's a level of cynicism that assumes that it's impossible and that attitude is like prevalent.
1: It's entrenched.
0: So you actually went back to your family winery after working for the Forest Service. Yes. And so you made a a shift from caring about ecology at a macro agricultural level to actually working treatments with vines.
1: Right, exactly. And there was something unique about Bethel Heights in that it's still, well, first of all, it is a magical place. You can't help but feel the power of that place. And obviously, I'm biased having grown up there, but the first vines that went in the ground are still there. And when I was coming back to Bethel Heights, It was after phylloxera had been in the valley for 20 years. So coming back in 2005, there was this moment where the first generation of the family was very excited to hand that over to my cousin and myself and say, you're going to get to replant all this and we can afford it now. And it's really exciting. And we were both mortified. But especially me, because I I felt like we had grown up together and they looked so healthy. And there was no real, what I thought, emergent need to tear those vines out when every winemaker salivates over working with vines that are 40 years old.
0: And unrooted.
1: Nobody gets to do that. Nobody gets to walk into their wine career with those vines. And we were being given that opportunity. And so part of what I found so exciting and challenging about working at Bethel Heights was this assumption that phylloxera was a death sentence and also that nobody would be able to keep those going for any amount of time. And so that was a lot of what, sparked my interest in the beginning because just coming out of the forest service I really I came to things from a completely different viewpoint than if I had been coming out of agriculture school where you're taught to control as many variables as possible and I want as many variables as possible I want a complicated problem and I think that we have so many solutions that are untapped and even unconsidered at this point to a lot of the challenges posed doing viticulture in this environment and so it was a it was an exciting time to come back.
0: And in general what you sort of object to is monoculture and reductive solutions that end up harming habitat.
1: Exactly. The version of terroir that is emblazoned on my soul has everything to do with a system that only exists uniquely in one place. And I think that the way we try to simplify that when it comes to wine or, or any type of agriculture, that is to limit, that is to empirically put limits on the potential expression of that place. And there's one thing that is an absolute truth that is in the front of my mind with everything that I do, and that's that life moves towards complexity because complexity is stability. It is resilience in the natural world. And what we forget every day, and we go out of our way to forget every day, is that agriculture is the natural world. We just simplify it to the point of industry
0: one of the things you did which in my experience is highly unusual is that you decided as opposed to saying okay these vines are definitely coming out at some point you decided instead with the phylloxera threat looming that you wanted to reinforce those soils around those vines mm-hmm. and to try to protect them against this threat in a way that would be through the use of agriculture
1: mm-hmm. i mean if you think about a 40-year-old plant on these soils, the trunks are like six inches in diameter. So the root biomass alone is kind of an immense challenge for phylloxera, which is not native here. It's native to the southeastern United States. And so it has its own set of strikes against it when it comes to a new climate and has to figure that out. And so I always believed, even though... It was. It's really hard to study phylloxera, it's very elusive, but that there were answers that were precluded by the discovery of American rootstocks that were compatible. So we kind of stopped looking at phylloxera as an organism that we needed to care about, but I think it's a pretty fascinating organism. And there are a lot of... That got me really interested in sort of the, the ecology of predators in the soil and especially cultivating the generalist predators that would act on phylloxera. And the point of it is really just to keep it from getting out of control because it's not like phylloxera ever kills the plant. It's some secondary pathogen or major drought or something. Once the root system has declined to that point, the plant can't support function anymore. And If you can prevent that from happening, it's like living with HIV. You can live, we don't know how long. And with these rootstocks, you have to overcome quite a bit. That's a tremendous interruption in physiology if you put one species on top of another. They have different micronutrient requirements. They don't want the same things at the same time. And so I just don't believe that we know the lifespan of this versus that on these soils because we never gave ourselves a chance to figure that out.
0: Working with a web and saying, okay, we're going to strengthen this so that the phylloxera threat is diminished, but we're not trying to eliminate this thing. We're just trying to create a system for it. It's kind of like right in step with the other things that you believe in, I think.
1: Exactly. I think the concept of species elimination should not be part of our discourse right now, especially when it pertains to the way our climate is changing and the value of trying to eradicate species, because it's not that world anymore. We are not going to be able to control the spread of species the way that we think we can. And we spend a lot of energy on trying to find ways to eradicate things that are really just cut out to survive and thrive in environments where they've never been before. And if we were to instead focus our efforts on rebuilding the layers of lost food web, so energetic layers of the food web, then those things that become invasive would not be able to take the purchase that they do. I mean, nature hates negative space. It always will fill it with something, and usually it's going to be the something that has been building up a serious bunch of answers for questions that are endemic or our native species just don't have. So if those have all eroded or gone away, or if you took them all out to develop your vineyard, then duh.
0: And that's the real problem with monoculture.
1: Yes. I mean, there is a problem of agriculture, and there are many problems with agriculture, and those are two different conversations altogether. together, but we need to be having both of them.
0: And so what actions did you take when you wanted to preserve those vines?
1: Primarily, it was twofold. There's the matter of cultivation, which is regularly practiced in almost all of agriculture, but especially viticulture. It's embraced even by types of quote-unquote sustainable agriculture. And a lot of that has to do with breathing air into the soil, but coming from the biological sciences and a, a concept of ecology that is completely at odds with that idea because you don't see bare soil in nature unless there's been a catastrophic disturbance, a landslide, a catastrophic fire. Uh, flood, etc. I mean, when those landscapes have to rebuild, naturally, the first things to come in are going to be the life forms that can exist almost anywhere. And that to develop complexity takes geological time. And yet we wipe that away in moments. So there's a real reckoning coming. And even though viticulture is still a tiny a tiny piece of the agricultural land base in Oregon, a lot of our most sensitive habitat and the last remaining vestiges of intact habitat are precisely where people have their eyes focused on building the next vineyards. And since this is still kind of a manifest destiny type of a place, nobody's really thinking about what it means when all that's gone.
0: Because a part of what you believe is that we're moving towards a scarcity of agricultural resources in the future.
1: Absolutely. And I forgot that I was answering your question. So cultivation was the first thing. But then the second thing was really diving into the native biology of our soils. Because there are a lot of generalist predators that do act on phylloxera. And I didn't mention any of them, but a couple of them are fungal. Some of them are bacterial. There are mites that predate phylloxera. And so it was kind of a, a journey of discovery of studying those organisms, several of which were actually being studied at the time of the first graph. So that there were really well-done scientific studies on entomopathogenic fungi pierce the cell walls of these little creatures and desiccate them from the inside out. And I was fascinated by that. And they're pretty universal in our environment and in all environments. And so culturing those in compost teas and then stopping cultivation, because one thing phylloxera really appreciates is being given a ride from one vine to the next. And constant soil disturbance is one way of making phylloxera move real quickly through a vineyard. And then also, we never pulled dead vines out of the ground because even when a plant has basically collapsed above ground, there's still stuff happening. There's still a lot of reserves left in those big trunks, and they can keep those bugs busy. And when you pull them out, you're never going to find phylloxera when you pull a plant out of the ground. They will have already moved on to the next guy.
0: When you say cultivation, you mean like plowing.
1: Precisely, yeah. Dragging a metal implement through the ground and turning it over. And that, I mean, it is, it's very controversial. I am not appreciated by a lot of my peers for saying this repeatedly, but cultivation, especially active and ongoing cultivation, is contrary to maintaining a soil biology that has a chance of completing the cycles of life that need to be completed, be that carbon cycling or nitrogen cycling or any of those things, those organisms, as aerobic as they are, they do not want to be exposed directly to the sun. And one inescapable truth is that bare soil is losing carbon. It is oxidizing humus. You are losing your ability to support the life that supports your life. It's not that hard of a concept to me, but it's it's very entrenched, even in sustainable agriculture.
0: Kind of the next step of that, which you've explained to me before, is that when you affect that life, the microbes around the soil, around the vine, you upset the uptake of those minerals into the plant
1: certainly i mean we do this in the reductive environment of laboratories but no plants have the ability to take up minerals by themselves in a mineral soil they need a microbial pathway it can be fungal, it can be bacterial, but they need an organism partner to be able to reduce those minerals into a plant-available form. And especially with perennial plants, woody plants, they almost all need a mycorrhizal partner, so a fungal partner that can help them take up especially phosphorus and other micronutrients. And there's no other way. There really is no other way for a vine to be able to get those things. And So when we constantly disturb that fungal lattice, it's kind of like you start over every year. And so the application of foliar micronutrients, which we never used to do, is now done pretty much universally in the wine industry.
0: So what you're saying is that if you have dead soils because you've used synthetics— and you've killed off, and maybe you've done a lot of cultivation, then you can buy some of the microbes that would have been there that you killed.
1: Since we've um, empirically divined in the laboratory setting exactly how many and and how much of these micronutrients you need, you then are are sold the suite of them to apply foliarly and at these prescribed times. I mean you get handed. A prescription by an agricultural industry that has grown up to support the death of our soils. And it's not like I even think any of these people are bad people. I just think that we have totally lost sight of how these cycles have been able to maintain and grow nutritious food for millennia, but that nature is a finite resource. And we seem to be incapable of coming to terms with that, and that has led us to this place where we think the cost of this thing can only be set by the cost of extracting the next pound of X, Y, or Z. And there's no answer once we run out of mineable phosphorus. There is no, I mean, we don't have answers to those questions, and most people aren't Wanting to go there, but we're close. We're getting very, very close to having extracted the last bit of these things that we can then pour onto farmland. And the more of those things that we use, the less able our crops are at being able to form those connections with microbes. Because if the plants aren't feeding the soil, then the soil's not supporting the organisms that can actually do that work for
0: us. And the big issue there that is the result of the short-term decision-making that you're objecting to is that the fruit or the produce of that plant or vine isn't the same as if it had had those microbial uptake.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, in Oregon, it's actually a, a really beautiful example of how vastly different the seasons can be. So you can have bloom in the last week of May, like in our last few warmest years, and you can have bloom after the 4th of July, like in 2011. That is going to mean very different things for the plant. And when we we anticipate the needs of these plants and when they need certain things at certain times, it is, at best, clumsily done. When plants are able to communicate their needs with their microbial partners within the set of variables that they're given in a given season, that is what makes time in wine. That is the season that you experience, as opposed to sameness, which we move more and more towards when we are trying to control all of those variables. And I think that's mostly motivated by fear. And agriculture has a very close relationship with fear and always has. I mean, we are now in this moment, this very disturbing moment where when we're talking about food security, the conversation still is revolving around calories and energy per person. And what it really needs to be about is nutrient density per person because we actually we can survive on a lot fewer calories than we currently do and if we instead started farming for nutrition empirically people would be healthier because right now people are literally starving to death in morbid obesity
0: the thing is that we think well we're eating the same food that our parents did so no problem But in fact, you're saying it's not the same food.
1: I am saying that. And there are some very good studies that have shown the loss of nutrient density in food since the beginning of industrial agriculture, but really in the last 50 years. Because what we do have in America is just an immensely generous landscape and the potential to grow So much food, so much nutrient-dense food. And so it takes a long time when you—like, if you take the grasslands of the Midwest and what they had to offer in terms of the potential populations that could have been supported on perennially-based agricultural systems— We really fumbled the ball there by putting monocultures of annual crops down without any thought of how long it would take for the nutrient density to start to decline. Because when you put a crop in on virgin land like that that's been a savanna-type ecosystem with perennial grasses for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you can grow some pretty healthy food for a while before it starts to decline. And now we're in that age of decay. I mean, you kind of see the curve growing very nicely. You you start out as a human being who's susceptible to death really by catastrophic disaster. And then you move into the sort of communicable disease thing that kills off a bunch of people. And then now we're in the age of true decay, which is to say we can't even support our own genetics anymore because we don't have the cofactors for the enzymes that run our metabolisms most of our dna and most of what our bodies care about are still about short-term survival so that you can reproduce and the nutrient needs for things like dna repair mechanisms they take a back seat i mean nutrients are preferentially shuttled towards actions that support short-term survival and reproduction only. So everything that we're missing is really taking away from that quality of life towards the end of life, which is what everybody's so desperate for now because we're all sort of starting to see the decline of our genetics, essentially, with these modern diseases that have no answer. They're not communicable. They're really a, a function of us not working very well anymore.
0: What are some examples of that?
1: most of the diseases of old age alzheimer's dementia and certainly a lot of metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and things like that all of those diseases have functions that are related to either hormonal systems or enzymatic pathways or the communication between your gut and your brain and those are all modern diseases they did not exist before and it is the deterioration of our own metabolism by value of less nutrients in our diet and just more calories and more calories from empty sources.
0: So basically kill the microbes around the plant and then eventually you kill yourself.
1: I mean, we're also killing the microorganisms in our own systems and have been doing so. I mean, if you think about Even where antibiotic resistance comes from, there's a really compelling argument that the rise of antibiotic resistance is not happening in hospitals, it's happening on the agricultural landscape because much of what we're using out there is antimicrobial in nature, and so... What bacteria can do with lateral gene transfer happens in days, in moments. It takes us 30 generations to make changes in our genetics. They swap DNA all the time. So the acquisition of resistance to things like antibiotics or pesticides or herbicides or any of those things, that takes a couple generations of bacteria. I mean, these are magnificent organisms in their ability to adapt. We are not so adaptable and our beneficial partners in our own guts and in the soil are usually the most susceptible to those things. And the pathogenic things are really good at making copies of genes that make them more fit. So it's not that complicated, but for some reason we still are pretty behind the ball when it comes to figuring some of these things out.
0: So at a solution level, the key would be to take control of your own food
1: Certainly on a personal level, I think being connected to where your food comes from and asking questions about how your food is grown and developing a relationship with the people who grow your food is ideal. Community-based agricultural systems work. They work beautifully, actually. And there's a lot of places in the world where some things are really starting to take hold. And we have a lot of examples of that, especially in the wealthier parts of America. We see that working very well. My concern is that we don't have enough time for that to really ramp up so that the poor people can also partake in that because right now, you know, they have only enough money to buy the least nutritious food and that is elitism on a cellular level that my skin almost like boils off my body when I think about that.
0: So something that I hear sometimes when I have conversations with people who are defending industrial agriculture is if we can't do agriculture at this scale for this price, then we can't feed the world. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that?
1: There are laws about carrying capacity that I think we will deny apply to humans until, until we're done. But I do believe that that's true. I think that there are limits to how many people that we can grow nutritious food for, especially given how many places have already lost their topsoil and are thereby going to take millions of years to rebuild. I don't have any concerns about what happens after us because it's happened before. However, yes, I think that it's true that we do not currently know the way that we are going to feed the 12 billion, the 15 billion, but we are not feeding ourselves now. And so, to me this is really the it is the Manhattan project of our time. I don't Know why we are talking about anything else. Because if we were to turn all of the ingenuity and all of the creativity that exists within this country and the world at large, if we were to really focus on just how are we going to nutritiously feed the population that we even have now, then we would start to see the boundaries of what we can support, we have to come to grips with that. We do have to address matters of population growth and how much habitat it takes to support a landscape that needs to grow nutritious food because we can't do it the way we're doing it. And I, I do think that that argument, there are components to the argument that industrial agriculture is the only way, but My calling bullshit on that is just that there is an empiric value to more people with their hands in the land, and intimacy with food is part and parcel to understanding how this all works. And industrial agriculture has removed people from the landscape at record numbers and just in the last hundred years. I mean, there's so fewer farmers than there were just 50 years ago and none of them even have the time anymore to talk to their neighbors. There's no support anymore for the people who take all the risk to grow the food. And so naturally you're going to respond to the person who says, the only way you're going to be able to do this, man, is with this 15 tons of chemicals and this giant tractor, and there's not going to be any labor for you, so you got to fire all these people and just do it all yourself with machines. We've been looking for quick answers to geological time scale problems, and. Until we can come to grips with just the fact that the way we're doing it now is completely at odds with our own survival, then, you know, we're just, we're still really on the downslope.
0: Is your thought that we're perhaps already over the carrying capacity of the planet in terms of human population?
1: It's really hard to say because so many landscapes have been degraded that didn't need to be degraded, that... If we were supporting that landscape, then I think that our carrying capacity would possibly be maybe a little bit larger, but you no, know, the way we're doing it now, I mean, already already it's too many. And it is certainly too many for every person, every child to have the opportunity to form an intimate relationship with. The natural world, and to me, that's so critical to being able to embrace the idea, and not just embrace the idea, but to to love the idea that we can't grow beyond a certain point, you know, without major implications. I mean, the thing about biology is that it will come up with answers. I mean, death is one of the most ingenious creations of evolution. You know, I mean, we can't, we can't keep going. Nature finds a way for you to die if you're too big. And I think we're kind of in that, we're still dancing with that.
0: What would be first steps to revitalizing topsoil and how long does it take?
1: It depends a lot on the environment. Here in Oregon, we are very lucky, especially on the west side of the Cascades, because we do have this really generous amount of rain in the winter. and so. We can grow topsoil here. And that's, you know, it starts with understanding that it takes time to rebuild the layers, the functional layers in a food web, and that building soil requires most of those layers to at least have some population that's functioning at a high level. So if you haven't been farming for a really long time, then that process is much easier than if you're starting on a piece of ground that's been farmed industrially for 50 years or 75 years but just to sort of simply answer your question certainly in the west where there's water and in the midwest where there's just super deep soil very generous rainfall patterns we could be building topsoil with rotational agriculture and pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in the deep levels of soil permanently. So not just like in the ephemeral top eight inches of soil where it's being respired back into the atmosphere by a decomposition and bacterial respiration, but really putting it into the soil. So sequestering carbon with agriculture, that's, that's real and that's possible. And in 10 years, we could make a huge difference in America. There are places in the world where it's going to take a whole lot longer than that. But here, our kids, in our kids' lifetimes, they could see a landscape improving instead of just accepting that it's kind of just getting a little bit worse every day. That is that is the gift that I want for every little person out there it's just so that they don't have their only experience being watching something decline that's terribly sad
0: so what about environments where there isn't much rain in terms of revitalizing topsoil what's the prognosis
1: there are places where the limits of agriculture really do need to be dictated by the moisture regime. I mean, you just can't you can't fake it and you can steal it from other places, which is kind of how we're doing it now, but those places really shouldn't be trying to do agriculture at scale. It's just not appropriate. And probably populations should not be in the millions in those places also. These are big problems.
0: And the reason that they're Doing agriculture at scales because the temperature is consistent. So those consistent temperatures allow for industrial-level agriculture. The problem is that they don't have the liquid. So if they irrigate, they get the liquid.
1: Exactly. The thing that's also true in a lot of those very arid environments is that they have very fertile soils, but no moisture, and so nothing grows there. But the second you put some water out there, boom, you know, you can you can amaze yourself pretty quickly and that i think gives us this confidence to do that in perpetuity which is how the west was really one i mean a lot of, if you look at the water laws in the west you would you would think that an insane person wrote them and kind of that's i mean they were just totally diluted like that was when I think the idea of six billion people just didn't, it didn't occur to anyone that that would happen. And now here we are, not even two generations later, and we have horrible issues around water. I mean, it's going to be a big deal here in the next 10 years, in the West especially.
0: So, in terms of irrigation and microbes in topsoil, Mm -hmm. how does irrigation affect those things? I understand that you have to take the water from somewhere, and that's a problem. But can you revitalize topsoil with irrigation, or no?
1: I think that when it comes to certain soils that are that are very degraded, there is no way back without some inputs. And so, with compost, I mean, especially if if you're building carbon back into the soil. So, most arid environments have Quite a bit of vegetation. They are some of the most diverse places in the world. But those plant communities are very specifically adapted to that environment. They're not water hungry. They build a different kind of soil. And there are foods that can be grown in those soils. They are not necessarily foods that we are comfortable or familiar with yet. But I think that if we were to consider every landscape according to the life that it can support right now then every place could be building topsoil if you're losing topsoil that's under your care then you're doing something wrong
0: something that you know that i didn't know is that plants can create their own topsoil around them
1: there is no way to build soil without a green plant without plants you can only have mineral soil created. So, the weathering, the chemical weathering, the physical weathering of rocks by rain and wind, et cetera, mostly water. And then you can have some creation of very rudimentary soil by colonizers like lichens and mosses. And those were the first colonizing land plants. And then the second thing that needs to happen is some kind of nitrogen fixer. And so, These layers are created by the life that's able to support itself given the set of variables that it has. And so these really degraded landscapes can still support some form of life. But to really build topsoil in a semi-arid or a truly arid environment takes thousands of years. In a temperate environment, you can do that within a human lifespan. You can make real soil
0: what happens when a plant doesn't get a certain nutrient? What are nutrients that are necessary for different plants, and what happens when they're not there? What happens in the plant when it doesn't get, say, nitrogen or it gets too much nitrogen?
1: Nitrogen is, is one of the macronutrients, and pretty much all plant life requires nitrogen. But interestingly, those plants that we call nitrogen-fixing plants have a relationship with a microbial partner that does the fixing of N2 or atmospheric nitrogen into ammonium, which can be used by a plant. And that is a very intimate and very elegant relationship. And some of the, some of the most invasive species in the world actually are nitrogen fixers. And they're so successful because they're able to colonize tremendously degraded landscapes. But When a plant's not getting the nutrients that it needs, it often will show signs of either chlorosis, so like a yellowing, a lack of being able to develop good chlorophyll, so good green, and then photosynthesis goes down and then you're not storing nutrients and you're not able to feed the soil. Because if you think about photosynthesis, plants really can only get carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen through that Incredibly elegant process of pulling electrons off of hydrogen and creating sugar. But the whole point of them doing that is not to feed themselves, but to feed the soil microorganisms that do the breaking down of mineral soil. So inorganic forms of manganese and magnesium and calcium and all the things that they need. I mean, 19 to 21 different micronutrients and macronutrients are required pretty much by all plant life. And the only way they get those things, other than carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, is through that microbial pathway. So if you don't have topsoil, then you don't have those things. And so the only thing that your plant is going to be able to do is photosynthesis. So you can still grow a plant. But you're going to be applying nitrogen and phosphorus and calcium and molybdenum and all the micronutrients that you need. And you can still grow a plant that way. But it's A, not going to be the same plant that you would be eating from a healthy soil. And B, I don't know what that has to do with place. If we're talking about wine, I don't. That doesn't speak to me at
0: all. So sometimes when people talk about, I want a mineral wine, they say, like, I want roots that are interacting with the bedrock. Right. And so does that imply less interaction with the topsoil? Like, is the thought that once the vines go deeper, that they're going to pick up more stuff?
1: I love this question because I think everybody should think deeply about this, especially in the wine community where we pay so much lip service to minerality and roots and bedrock. Because a lot of things are are interesting about that portrait that we paint. A root touching a rock doesn't do anything to break down those minerals and make them available to the plant. And in truth, with the exception of limestone, which has a very different pH than most of the other viticultural soils in the world, the suite of nutrients that is available from one soil to the next, regardless of origin, is not that different. When they become available has everything to do with pH and microorganisms and water. So. To get minerality in wine, and this is something that I think about a lot, you need to have reduced forms of those minerals in the wine matrix. And the slow release of electrons from those complexes is what I think we perceive of uh, as minerality. I think that the way that we sense hydrogen ions when something is more... Acid, So when the pH is lower and you are titrating acidity in your mouth, I think we have a similar capability to taste electromagnetism from reduced mineral complexes in wine that as they interact with oxygen are being released and therefore available. Because it's like if you've ever shocked your tongue with a battery or been around a lightning storm. And smelled ozone. We have organoleptic perceptions of electricity. And that is what I think minerality is because when you go and lick rocks, they all kind of taste the same. They have different textures, but the like flavor is not that different. But everybody talks about minerality and everybody seems to know exactly what they think is minerality. But if you dive real deep into, Soils and plants and how they interact, bedrock really doesn't come into the equation because a taproot for a vine, even so, own rooted vine, or especially when we're talking about rootstock, because a lot of them can't taproot down very far because they're riparian in nature and so they tend to stay more surface. But with an own rooted Vitus vinifera, you know, that taproot can be very long and very strong, but it has one job. And that's basically anchoring and water. I mean, it's a hydrological function, an anchoring function, a physical function. It's the surface roots. So the stuff that plays in the top eight inches of soil that extract anything, in truth. And those are millions and millions of miles long when you take into account an intact fungal network that connects roots to the plants around them to the other grape plants, to the surrounding plant communities, and to all of those microorganisms. If minerality is real, that's where it's happening.
0: The thing that's different about wine from, say, bread or strawberries is that you can put wine in a bottle and open it 50 years later. And so my question is, have you been able to say, okay? This was a place that 50 or 100 years ago had topsoil and now doesn't, and this is how the wines taste different.
1: That's a really good question. I am not fortunate or wealthy enough to have necessarily tasted enough wines of that age to be able to speak to that in an intelligent and categorical way, but what I will say is that when we lose our topsoil or when we go out of our way to interrupt the organisms that cycle nutrients and work with the climatic factors that change from one year to the next, that empirically the ability of a wine to age comes down to the abiotic restrictions of sight and not the biological potential of a site. And I do think that when you have all of the potential energetic connections that are possible on a landscape, and they vary a lot from one place to another, from one region to another, when all of those things are in place, the vine's ability to create stable matrices of those minerals That resist oxidation over time is empirically more. And so I would like to answer your question by saying, I believe that that would be true. And that the wines of 100 or 75 years ago, probably less so 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, when chemical farming was really getting going, that those wines would be more reflective of a of an intimacy in farming that does not scale, and the kind of farming that took place 100 and 150 years ago, 250 years ago, however long, I mean, 1,000 years ago, that the care of the landscape was informed exclusively by a familiarity with the natural world, and that the movement of agriculture into a reductionist field is what began the simplification of that. I mean, we do, to some extent, want to control our environment. As biological beings, we want to protect ourselves, and we want to know that we're going to have food, and so growing food in one place is something that we've done for a really long time. But the learning of how to do that was really first formed by a relationship with the natural world, and we have moved completely away from that.
0: If you had two different single vineyard wines and you tried one and versus the other, would you be able from the, the attributes of that wine, the taste, the perception of that wine, to say this wine comes from a vineyard with topsoil and this one doesn't?
1: I think so. I think that it's very confusing when vines are young because perennial plants are very finicky uh, when it comes to becoming one with their place and youth especially for vitus <laughs> it's a real thing you know i mean this is a this is a plant that started breaking away from its closest ancestors about 70 million years ago and has a tremendous vegetative cycle that It really wants to keep going. And so when it is on a rich topsoil, it does tend to want to have a really robust vegetative cycle. So the reason why we have historically put vineyards on shallower, more eroded sort of rocky hillside landscapes is because that kind of puts a check on this organism's evolutionary biology and convinces it to do the things that we find fascinating. So it's kind of complicated to say that you'd be able to know I do I will say you know when you've tasted living soil because it is like an explosion of energy in your face. And I think that there are there are lots of examples of wines that I've imprinted with that they make you panic a little bit. Like you've missed some conversation, you know, with somebody that you, you try this wine and you say to yourself, "Oh, what, I have to talk to this person. I have to meet who's in charge here. And for me, invariably, those have been people who it's very small, it's very intimate, and it is really and truly formed by a love of the land. And when you love something that much, you know when you're not doing right by it. And I think most people who who really love what they do, they eventually come back to the same place, which is you can see when your property is changing. You can see those shifts in plant communities. You can see more disease. You see more pests and all those things. And you naturally go back to what nature shows you, which is that when those layers are in place, it's if you build it, they will come. It comes back together. And grapes, are they're just this medium. They have this amazing ability to read all of those little conversations and encapsulate them and let them evolve over time. There isn't anything like that that you can have that kind of conversation over where the conversation that you can have about farming is really different when you're talking over wine than it is when you're talking over just an amazing salad. And I think that's the power. That's the power of wine.
0: Because otherwise it might be a little trite to focus on vines in an era where, Scarce resources indicate that people are dying a slow nutritional death. Not saving
1: anybody's lives. And I think about that a lot. Especially when I have my moments of existential crisis. It's a big deal. You know, we're growing something that most people can't afford. And trying to have a conversation with everyone about the meaning of that. So, I think about that a lot.
0: I mean, it's not the only thing you grow.
1: No, no, it's not, but, you know, it could be, I mean, even my place, which has technically pretty poor soils, it's a, you know, it's a rocky hillside, grow some amazing food, feed a lot of people, but just with a little bit that I devote to that. And, you know, I devote a lot of that land to habitat. And that's really because I believe that that's the strength of what's different there than anywhere else. Feels different under your feet. It smells different at 6 p.m. And I just want everybody to get that. I want everybody to have that experience because it changes everything. It really does when you have a formative experience in nature that makes you realize how beautifully it works when it's working.
0: Well, I think that's probably where we jive the most because i think you have that sense about nature but i have that sense about wine Mm -hmm. like i have this this thing where i want to want to get it out there for other people to be like yeah this thing is really you know what i mean so i think that's kind of where we dovetail even though our lives are so different does that make sense it
1: totally does i i mean for me wine is i'm not one of those people who can remember names of the wines i'm not good like that i remember experiences that I've had with wine and those electrical moments that you can have over a beverage, which is really almost impossible to fathom. I mean, there isn't anything like wine. Just there isn't. And that is, to me, it's, it's greatest feature that it, speaks to us on so many different levels and it speaks to all of these things that we care about and, and identify with.
0: So something I've wondered sometimes is if the wine world in terms of consumers has fetishized characteristics of bad farming mm-hmm. in the flavors. Yes. For me, that would be kind of like saying this person has halitosis and I find it so attractive, right? <laughs> It'd be like, there's this characteristic yes. and I'm, I'm willing to pay more for it. But actually, it's an attribute of bad farming. Mm-hmm. Have you encountered anything like that in terms of flavors, tastes, or textures in a glass of wine?
1: Absolutely. It's a great tragedy, kind of rooted in the American wine tradition, which coincided with the dawn of industrial agriculture and the land-grant universities and how we teach simplification of landscapes, Controlling as many variables as possible, dosing in micronutrients instead of allowing for that process to be a part of what's going on in that season and in that environment. And I think that's largely to do with the expectation that we should be able to do this and replicate it the same way across landscapes. And that flies in the face. Of everything that I know and love about wine. And this last 50 years maybe where wine criticism or wine journalism sort of develops this industry that's focused on putting the consumer and the consumer's expectations in front of the artistry. And I mean, for example, one of the main things that gets controlled in viticulture and agriculture is nitrogen. And, you know, there's this whole school of thought about yeast assimilable nitrogen and yeast preferring amino acid nitrogen. And so if you don't have amino acid nitrogen, then you're either going to feed it in the winery or your ferment is going to stick. And even when that's disproven with very low nitrogen musts that complete fermentation beautifully. The fear of risk and the uncertainty that comes with working with an uncontrolled process, I think is what really kind of gets in the way of us fully realizing the potential of these places for making distinctive wines. And, you know, the simplification of the landscape is really sort of how we've gotten to this place where I would not argue with any consumer that says to me, I tasted 50 wines today and I thought they all kind of tasted the same. I don't even bother arguing with those people. I commiserate with them and I try to explain to them how I think we've gotten to that place. And yet they play a role in that as well it's kind of if you want this beverage to be like coca-cola you know there's a way to reverse engineer everything we know how to control metabolism at a very fine scale now and so that's more and more what the larger production stuff heads towards because it mitigates risk and it puts your business plan in a in good shape if 95 points equals this yeast being dosed at this amount at this time and your bricks being here and your ph being here and your you know, i mean we know how to make that happen and in the vineyard the same you know the water the nutrients the lack of supporting vegetation, the exclusion of any other vegetation. I mean, we are really reducing these landscapes down to just what they're able to produce abiotically and then with a lot of help from a human. And those wines, to me, do stick out as being wine-like, but not wine in a lot of cases, I think more representing the lesser things that an environment is capable of, as opposed to the best things that an environment is capable of.
0: So what I was hoping to do was mention to you a few topics that come out on the wine side. Mm -hmm. And you can tell me perhaps if there's some link on the agricultural side having to do with maybe topsoil or something else. Mm -hmm. So the first topic that would come to mind for me would be ripeness.
1: A very tricky subject when you're talking to winemakers or wine growers because everybody thinks that they know exactly what that means for them. And there is very little agreement across this, but most people will say, at least now, it's very fashionable to say that it's about flavor. It's not about numbers, it's just about flavor. But we also, I think, are in kind of an unfortunate apex of a pendulum swing where and I'm speaking mostly in the context of cool climate varieties, which are what I've mostly worked with in my life, but this swing away from very decadent wines, which, you know, weren't even possible here in Oregon for a long time, back towards a range of ripeness that allows for the expression of other flavors. And so to me, there are things that you can't escape when it comes to some of these phenotypes. So Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Chardonnay has a pretty wide climatic niche. Pinot Noir has a much more narrow one and some other things even more so. But one thing is always true with every variety, and that's that the accumulation of sugar, so the sugar-loading phase really does sort of preclude Flavor development. So until you have done all of your sugar loading, you really don't get the development of secondary flavors. The accumulation of minerals happens when the is still photosynthetic, so when the is still green. So all those minerals are already there and they kind of drive that inberry metabolism later on. But this is just a sort of very scientific way of me getting to my point, which is that time matters. A lot, And having an appropriate amount of sugar when you get the amount of flavor development that you think is perfection, that has everything to do with what you do in the vineyard because your year is going to do what it does. I mean, the climate is going to do what it does. You're going to have had all your rain in January and maybe none at the beginning of spring. Or maybe you just got all of your rain in the last month and that you have to take every year into consideration with that goal of giving the grapes the time that they need because when your hand is forced by too steep of a sugar accumulation curve, then you have to cut it off. Or you have to do a water ad, and that, that is done a lot but it's it's never gonna be the same thing that it could be if it just had the time that it needed and with the appropriate crop load and enough moisture in the soil and all of the things happening at the right time so that you get those days because it's, sunshine matters a little bit time matters a lot I mean, it just is, a lot of those things are just a function of time.
0: And what about phenolics Mm -hmm. and soil?
1: Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that influence the development of phenolics, and for every variety, that's different as well, because you know, we don't talk about it a lot when it comes to white wine, but it's still a thing. And oftentimes, we talk about it negatively when it comes to white wine and positively when it comes to red wine, but there are precursors of what we consider to be positive phenolics in red wine, and those are green phenolics. And for those to resolve into the kinds of phenolics that create length and good texture in wine and aren't just hard and green, again, that's a function of time and having the kind of soil that will support your timeline. And one of the great... Conundrums for me is that there's this notion of eliminating competition so that your vine gets all the nutrients and your vine gets all the water. But if you know anything about soil biology and how complexity drives the metabolism of minerals in the soil and the availability of minerals in the soil and how plants and roots hold water and bare soil can really only transpire that that's a problem and that does truncate the amount of time that we have because our soils are actually, you know, especially the volcanic soils in Oregon have a fairly decent amount of clay even the very shallow ones and so we go into season, we go into spring with a, an abundance of water and we're able to hold that provided the management is good, we're able to hold that soil well into July when the canopy really should be shutting down and, you know, the commencement of verasion should be going and then you have enough water to make it to the end of the season to feed those microorganisms that are going to help drive all of those functions of healthy plants. And a lot of what we do just kind of sits on top of that. And so if you know you have to pick at a certain pH because you don't want to adjust your acidity or you don't want to have a a wine that's 25 bricks, then usually your picking decision is going to be dictated by those things, especially as the climate gets warmer and we have warmer and warmer seasons. But just tweaks in how we manage the soil make huge differences in terms of how much time you get. And when it comes to wine grapes, a couple days is actually quite a lot at the end of that season. That last two weeks before harvest, a whole lot happens, even though it looks like nothing's happening. That's the magic time. That's the detail. And a lot of wines just aren't getting that.
0: So what would be steps that you could do with the soil to get that time
1: so if you just have one or two species growing under the vines then they do have a propensity to want to compete with each other because there's this thing that happens in nature where a couple of organisms with limited resources will compete with one another because the matrix isn't strong enough to support just three but with diversity i mean as you increase diversity that matrix grows stronger you actually by hundredfold you can increase the amount of carbon that you're just putting into the soil in the early season with 25 more species so having a very diverse system under the vines within the vineyard system itself is step 1 and trying to have as many species that are active and dormant, you know, so having year-long green so that you're constantly feeding soil and things that are appropriate to that region because there are dryland species that will be less water-hungry but will still feed those microorganisms, especially in some places where it's truly arid. And you could be pumping carbon into the ground at night when those plants are doing. The sort of carbon exchange that cam plants do. I mean, there's different types of photosynthesis based on the environment that these plants are native to. And some of them actually do most of the work of photosynthesis at night. And if your vines are then waking up during the day, if those plants have been working all night to feed the soil, then in an arid environment, it's easier to keep that metabolism going. And it's really, if you don't want to add nutrients and if you don't want to add water, that complexity becomes more and more important. As opposed to if you're in a very temperate climate, that diversity is really going to amplify the energetic potential of your site and is really going to work hard for you into the, because we're very hot in the summer, It's very dry and very hot. People think of Oregon as this really wet place, but, you know, that's really only our winter and our summer is pretty Mediterranean. So for me, it really comes down to the complexity of the system and the functional layers. And so as you can introduce more species to your cover crop or your permanent cover, whatever you want to call it, and reduce the amount of cultivation that you're doing, you are going to be feeding more life underground, you're going to be increasing the water storage capacity and the nutrient storage capacity of your soils, and your vine is going to respond to that. And I think that we've gotten really used to tasting only for those factors of terroir that are abiotic in nature and not biological in nature, and that's a that's a tragedy. For the potential of wine. I mean, even if you think about the gout de terroir that comes from not even the soil environment, but from aromatic plants that grow in proximity to your grapes. I mean, the same is true for some things that people think are negative, like eucalyptus or smoke taint, but those are heavy aromatic compounds that make their way into the must via the skin. And if you've removed all that, then you've empirically limited the potential of tasting that place. And, I mean, I just can't think of anything more compelling than being able to really experience the depth of what a place smells and tastes like. I mean, that is what really gets me excited about wine.
0: And so what about the concept of vine age in agriculture? I mean, what would encourage longer vine age.
1: I think first of all, being realistic about how many vineyards can be in a given region without the breaking up of the landscape with habitat so that your pest and disease pressure doesn't trump everything because when you're managing for problems or you're managing for symptoms then you you can't You cannot make the best wine possible. And that's what you move towards when a region moves towards a monoculture. And at that point, you really, at best, are going to be maybe just the best reductionist farmer and the best reductionist winemaker, given that all you have are the empirical abiotic restrictions of your site that you're working with. You may control those very well, you may get really good at knowing when to do certain things, but it's still a shadow of what could have been. And so I think, first and foremost, you can't be a monoculture, and even within a vineyard system, you can't be a monoculture. You know, these vineyards that have nothing but bare ground, fence post to fence post, how do they define place? What is the definition of place for that system? I don't even mean that in a judgmental way. I genuinely wonder when I look at those places what they think, why they felt that they had to put a vineyard right there if they weren't going to have anything but substrate and aspect and climate. That's a real question for me. And then Making the commitment to walking the walk with what's dealt to you every season and being willing to have, not just being willing, but being excited about looking at the year or a set of two years as an equation, knowing what you want the result to be. How are you going to do things differently this year because your bloom time was a month and a half later than it was last year? And how are you going to prune next year to make sure that you don't have a a sudden decrease in the robust health of your vines? Because with perennial plants, they will always sacrifice the now for the later. And so if this year is not working for them, they're going to shut down on you. And so vine longevity to me really is about landscape longevity. And it will be directly tied to how quickly you are depleting the resource or how much you're working to maintain the structure that has to be there.
0: Sometimes I hear people say better wines result when I stress the vines. What is, to your mind, good stress, bad stress, or stress, just as a concept, to a vine?
1: This actually plays very well into your earlier question about fertilizing and things like that. I mean, the myth of stress equals greatness in wine really does have an evolutionary component to it, which has to do with that vegetative cycle. And when... When a vine is put on incredibly fertile soil, it will make these very nitrogen-heavy musts that tend to be pretty simple and oftentimes highly reductive because of that amount of nitrogen. And I think that what's really interesting about the fact that Vitus vinifera really does seem to respond well to a limited or a restrained habitat. That the connections that it's going to make are going to be largely to get access to micronutrients, and micronutrients are minerals, and minerals are cofactors for enzymes. And so the way a wine lives and ages and respires is really about the complexity of that matrix and, you know, very vigorous vines tend to make pretty simple wines, whereas vines that have had to forge those connections with a restrained system, generally speaking, they only take the things that they need to get to the end and That takes a long time. Empirically, it takes a long time because, like I said, those things are often a function of time and not so much the sun or whatever. And so provided that you can put a vine in a place where it is restrained but not truly stressed, because a stressed vine is really going to make a stressed wine, and that doesn't taste good either. So a vine that's clearly under stress is going to show you that. It's going to have some expression of decline. And oftentimes that is, it gets some kind of fungal disease, or it starts to have less wood or whatever. But when you see a vine that's just not, it's just not wanting to overdo the vegetative cycle, you know that Is a good site. And youth really is one of those things that you just have to, you just have to get through because a a young vine really does want to do different things than an old vine does. Really, the entrenchment of a plant in its place is again a function of time. And we're not very patient. And we want, we want to be able to do the best possible thing within our own lifetime. And I think we should really be thinking more about. If there is a future for the American wine tradition or any wine tradition, then you should expect that the next generation will be able to take that to even higher places.
0: Sometimes when I speak with vineyard managers, they're like, we got to keep the vines healthy and keeping vines healthy means no virus. And then when I talk with people who make wine, sometimes not everyone sometimes people are like well i get more concentrated flavors at a lower alcohol with this kind of virus and it actually kind of helps me make the kind of wine i want to do mhm
1: i mean i think we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't think that viruses have played an incredible role in the formation of these phenotypes of one species that we think is so compelling the genetic versatility of the wine grapes specifically has got to have something to do with viral genetics and how spontaneous mutation can happen. There are viruses that are becoming economically important because they can wipe out entire vineyards in one fell swoop. But, I mean, I know for a fact I've got some virus in my Riesling and I don't care. Because again, I think that with a lot of these viruses, you can not only live with them for a long time, much in the way that you can live with phylloxera for a long time, but it can actually kind of give you an edge over youth in that it's another restraint on the system. And so a vine that's under stress, much like a human that's under stress, is going to Want to put more energy into its reproductive capacity. You may have an inherent less of a lifespan if your vine is virus, but by how much? And what are we really talking about anymore when we talk about the lifespan of a vine? I mean, there are very few centenarian vineyards out there. I would like to think that we can move back towards that, but right now, people are replanting every 20 years or something like that. So, I'm one of those rare viticulture people who, I mean, viruses are everywhere, and I feel like the more we try to escape them, again, the more you're simplifying a very complex system. And I do think that it's important with certain viruses to screen for that because you could end up blowing your entire investment. And so, I you should take that pretty seriously. But if you find a virus vine in your vineyard, and decide to replant the entire block because of that, I don't know how I feel about that. And I also think that one of the reasons we're talking so much about viruses now is that we are growing vines in depleted soils and in environments that don't necessarily have the capacity to support healthy viticultural systems.
0: That maybe haven't been fallow for long enough?
1: Yeah. And also, let's say that You're trying to put a vineyard in a place that has only ever supported sagebrush and other desert species, your pool of resources is very limited, and your vine's pool of resources is very limited. And so the introduction of a pathogen is going to be a bigger deal for you than it would be if you were growing grapes in. The Willamette Valley.
0: And what about yields and agriculture?
1: We come up with a lot of blanket statements about yields and quality. And I, again, I think a lot of those paradigms were formed in the old world where very limited soils and empirically limited systems did make small yielding plants and people fell in love with the wines. And so low-yielding vines equals high quality. And that is a, that's an unfortunate correlation that doesn't translate well to every environment. And so what we have here is a very protracted but very generously warm growing season. So our yield-to-quality equation, I think, is more dictated by the vintage than it is by any Kind of blanket rule. We generally aren't going to get six tons to the acre ripe here. That's just we don't have that kind of a long season. And I don't think anybody's trying to go there. But I think there was a moment where restricting yield, like really restricting yield, was very fashionable because you knew you could get to the magic 24 bricks if you took it down to just under two tons of the acre. And those those wines, it didn't take long to figure out that that's not a one plus one equals two. We really do have to take all of the variables of vintage into account when we decide what the vine should carry. And for me, again, this is about time on the vine and the appropriate curve in terms of sugar loading and flavor development. Because when there's not enough grapes on that vine and you have a very warm vintage, your sugar accumulation curve is going to be so steep. And your hand is really going to be forced by that kind of unfortunate moment where you're going to end up with an overripe, underripe wine. And I've tasted a lot of those. And It's not my thing.
0: For you, when you taste, is there a balance level that you say, okay, well farmed?
1: When a wine is really reflective of where it came from, then it had to have been well farmed. And I'm very hard-nosed about cultivation and these things. And I've tasted a lot of wines from vineyards that get cultivated that I thought were beautiful. and that it's how nature is very generous and you do get you do get a lot of grace when you're in a climate that's allowing you to do things that are contrary to what nature would like for you to do and also what nature can support over the long term but generally speaking when i taste a wine that that i find Bothersome in some way. It's usually because it had to be touched so many times. It had to be adjusted at so many points along the way. And the more times you have to make abrupt adjustments either in the vineyard or the winery, the more obvious that becomes on a wine. That is a mark to me that stands out over almost anything, is when a wine has been handled so much from the farm into the winery. It's a thing that kind of builds on itself. And the more times you touch it, the more times you have to touch it further on down the line. And then you end up with this thing and you don't even recognize it anymore. And I've tasted a lot of those. And some people really like them. But I can always tell when something is pretty undressed. And I don't, I don't mean that in the very trendy sort of natural wine kind of statement. I mean it in a this wine kind of grew itself. And that is a a very special thing.
0: If a vineyard is well cared for, what does it look like?
1: I think that's an excellent question. I would be lying if I thought that I could say that I know what it would look like everywhere. But I know what it looks like to me here And it looks a little messy because the floor is covered with life and lots of things growing and lots and lots of insects and birds and voles and moles and gophers and things that people hate the look of. And the canopy isn't super dark green. Because that is a sign of a lot of vigor. So when a canopy is a little bit on the yellow-green side, not super yellow, but a little bit on the yellow-green side, then I know that that vine is really working with the underground network and not so much just working on nitrogen. And I really like to see right around this time, so we're just finishing up with bloom basically, when a vineyard is being well cared for, bloom is like an explosion. It is the most fragrant smell. It's weird because some people can't smell it as well. But when you have a vineyard that is really sort of biologically diverse, that smell hangs over everything and it is super intoxicating. And to me, that's one of the marks of a vineyard that's being, because those, those aromatics are going to be reflected later on it's just those those compounds are so unique and then you know at the end of the season it should look like it wants to go to bed it should look like it's shutting down and not ready to grow another 10 miles you know some of that's youth but a lot of that is just a vine or any plant being able to feel and ride the season and take its cues from the season as opposed to taking its cues
0: from you. Are there other plants that remind you of behaviors of vines?
1: There's an infinite bank of things to learn from all plants. Generally speaking, I think that perennial plants or woody plants have... A different kind of gift to offer in that they really can read a landscape in a different way because of what happens when you're banking carbohydrates and when you're growing a permanent system the vine makes decisions much in the way that a long-lived person makes decisions and each year that you keep going you have something more to offer and so there is a a reading of the truths of place that a perennial plant can do that an annual can't and so yeah i mean the more that i learn about all of the trees and all of the perennial species that grow naturally here and also the world around It's truly awe-inspiring to think about even what we still have yet to tap into in terms of what
0: vines can really do. We've spoken about vine age, but what about the reactions in the bottle that lead to wine age? Mm -hmm. Is there agricultural inputs into oxidation, premature oxidation, normal aging? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: It's a very confounding conversation because there's so much that gets done in the winery that attempts to get in front of premature oxidation or even complex forms of reduction. And even amongst a lot of really smart winemakers, there's just a lot of confusion. There's a lot of things that we don't know, but oxidation reduction is just about electrons and whether or not you're losing them or you're keeping them in a stable way. And there's reduction that assists a wine through its aging process. And then there's complex reduction, which doesn't evolve. It's just not pleasant. And in the same way, there's Oxidative processes that go on that help a wine age. And then there's oxidation, which has to do with oxygen. And that's also negative. And so we know so little still about the things that happen within a wine as it ages, and whether it's under a screw cap or whether it's under a cork. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that when the product the grape, if you will, that makes the must, that makes the wine. There's a lot more that we can do to create stable musts, and I do believe that that does have something to do with minerals and which minerals get into stable matrices early on. And I think a lot of things that we do with feeding nutrients especially makes those less possible. Because it's not timed correctly. Because as much as we know, we're never going to know exactly what the vine needs in that moment. And even the most intuitive farmers who really are tuned in are really looking for symptoms. And a symptom is really too late. So putting the things in place in the vineyard to make... Energetically stable musts where the minerals are in reduced forms and therefore can interact with oxygen over time so that a wine can unfold appropriately. That is, I think, more about what happens in the vineyard than anything that we can control in the winery. And we can very ham fistedly try to control it in the winery. And I think some of the things do help, but. To a a large extent, you kind of know, once the grapes hit the crush pad, whether or not you've got that or you don't. And everything you do after that is going to be about either just taking the ride and being a responsible steward or having to just correct a whole bunch of things in terms of wines that are just reduced. They're not reductive. They're just reduced. And that's different than a wine that's reductive and is young and is tight. And you know, that's it's really hard for a lot of people to talk about because it's very complicated and we just still don't know a whole lot about it.
0: But walk me through that difference of reduced versus reduction.
1: So minerals, in order to get into a plant Almost all of them have to be in a reduced form. So they have to have... So if you think about oxidation, it's the loss of electrons. And so the reason we call it oxidation and associate it with oxygen is that oxygen is very hungry for electrons and it wants to steal them. And it is very good at stealing them. It's kind of like shredding the paint off of a house when something is reduced it's like it gets a fresh coat of paint and those are the electrons and when you have mineral complexes that are reduced but not not reduced in terms of like complex reduction which mostly has to do with sulfur compounds and obviously we all know what that smells like but Mineral complexes being reduced just means that they have the full suite of their electrons in place. And so they will resist that tendency to lose electrons longer, much in the way that hydrogen ions or low pH wines can also help a wine resist oxidation over time. Because those at a higher pH, you are more vulnerable to secondary spoilage organisms. And when you don't have reduced minerals, they tend to either precipitate out very early and therefore not not be available for a mineral character in wine, but they also then cannot help hold a wine together over time. And so, like I was saying earlier, the accumulation of minerals is really during that period of time when the berries are still. Photosynthetic and green. And so that's pre softening. And so when the plant is able to rapidly accumulate minerals during that time, and again, that is really going to be dictated by when your bloom time is, how long your day is, and how stable your microbial environment is, then you're going to be able to do that business in the amount of time that you have. Because once bloom happens, You are on a a timeline to when softening commences and then you've got the minerals that you have. And whether or not they make it into stable forms in the must is really about what happened during that time.
0: Really, before the grapes are even picked, you're in some way determining the length of the ageability of the wine.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: And so what ended up happening with the Phylloxera old vine situation at Bethel Heights?
1: Those vines are still doing the good work and still commercially viable. I think a lot of people use that as a sort of a benchmark. But they are now in their 42nd year and in many cases are actually yielding more than they did 15 years ago. And so we know that Phylloxera is there. I mean, it was very obvious. It was the first vines that we ever bought from a nursery. It was some Pinot Blanc. And, you know, most of the Phylloxera in Oregon came in on nursery material because the original plantings were all cuttings. So Phylloxera really didn't have purchase here until we started buying vines in large quantities from nurseries. And so we know that Phylloxera is in the vineyard because that block of Pinot Blanc showed a rapid decline. It went down very quickly, and that's because those vines didn't have the time to develop the root systems that the other vines had had. And the vines that were closest to the Pinot Blanc that came in with Phylloxera, those You see where phylloxera is, and you see the slow march, but it's almost as though in certain years you gain a little bit back, and those are generally the years where it's cooler, it's wetter. These hot vintages, especially as you stack them up year in and year out, do tend to take a little higher toll, but for the most part, we're still getting at least what we got 10 years ago, because those are our single vineyard blocks and they're still a big part of what we do at Bethel Heights.
0: If someone wanted to take a step towards better farming, Mm -hmm. what would be a first step?
1: The most critical point is vineyard development. A lot of the choices that are made in that moment can be... Devastating to the ecology of a place. But if you're already 25 years in and you've been farming a certain way for a really long time, then my thoughts on that would be the first thing to do would be to try to remember or try to find out what the plant community and what the ecology of that place was to begin with. And concurrently start trying to build diversity into your vineyard floor. And if you feel like you can't move away immediately from adding nutrients, back away from them slowly. And if you feel like you're so tied to chemical farming that you can't possibly imagine doing it any other way, then maybe just do one block and prove it to yourself because that's the best Lesson, I think, is when you can see how plants respond to a more natural environment. And you don't have to risk the whole farm that way. And you can see what happens in one place over time. But moving quickly, I would say try to incorporate as much of what was there back into the environment that you have to work with, even if it means and this will sound like heresy to some people, even if it means pulling out some vines, because what you lose in yield will be dwarfed by what you gain in resilience and quality over time, and I will take that to the bank. It is imperative that we start rebuilding this landscape, and especially for great wine, it's even more of an immediate need we are becoming stupider i think we are getting dumber even our ability to taste greatness is becoming less because we're not used to it anymore
0: mimi castile is interested in what holds a wine and a planet together thank you very much for being here today thanks mimi castile runs the hopewell vineyard in oregon all drink to that is hosted and produced by myself Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website. All drink to That's I L L drink to that p o d.com This episode was made possible by the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. That's the same association that organizes the annual Willamette, the Pinot Noir Auction, Oregon Pinot Camp, and Pinot in the City. For more information, please visit WillametteWines.com. That's Willamette with two L's, two E's, and two T's. Wines.com. We used to have walnuts by the fire when I was a kid.
1: I love cracking walnuts.
0: So it turns out in Manhattan, not such a common thing. Once I left Oregon, I never saw walnuts by the fire ever again. Oh, So when I came back, I I was like, whoa. Because I haven't been back to Oregon for 30 years. Like, I haven't been here since I was 10.
1: We grow some amazing walnuts here.
0: Yeah, that's what they said downstairs. They have like a shrine to walnuts down there.
1: They should, because they're all pretty much gone. The Columbus Day storms kind of did those in. And guess what took their place? Vineyards.
0: Oh, is that true? Yeah.
1: So that was the first agricultural product that was grown on what was considered agriculturally poor soils walnuts. Right. And when the Columbus Day storms happened in the 1960s, the walnut industry was really devastated by that. And so what then was considered to be otherwise agriculturally unsuitable for anything was up for development. And this was right around the Tom McCall days. And so that was the impetus for our land use laws coming to be, because those agriculturally poor soils were slated for development, subdivisions, etc. And there was this major push, because there were some vineyards already in Oregon, and those shallow, rocky hillside soils were very suitable for viticulture. So that was really kind of a moment where we could have gone either way in Oregon in terms of our land use. And, I think it led to some pretty good outcomes. Seems like it. hmm